the comedian Josie Long sometimes hears voices in her head. What I like to do is I like the idea that they will tell me something magic or significant. Or like something so you like try and like zone in on a particular voice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and can then, you ever? No, because then they sort of run away. The more you try and focus on it, the more they disappear. That's so frustrating. But they get louder and louder, and then sometimes it's just like almost cacophonous, and you're like, oh, what's going on? Is that normal? People do that. Well, I've had it. Okay. Uh, although I haven't had it in my adult life, I only had it as a child. Oh, no. The comedy writer Graham Linehan also sometimes hears voices in his head. I had a friend who, when I told him that I used to get, like, you know, just little snapshots, little barks of, of a voice when I was waking up in the morning, uh. Uh, or when I was drifting off to sleep, which I believe is common, this friend of mine, when I told him about this, he was really upset by it because he's a friend who's always been worried by mental breakdown in some way, and... He kind of uh, found that very upsetting, the idea that I sometimes got these voices. So, presumably, a lot of people get this. You know, funnily enough, I was looking at Julian Assange's 2007 blog last night, and he had this kind of thing about the voices when he wakes up. It's the voice that says, you know, you must change the world, you must do it, you know, get up and make things happen. I don't say that, mine just go, And it's like, what? What the... You know? Mine go... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe it's a form of uh, deja vu. Like, you hear yourself going, just before you would make that response. Gosh, in some ways I wish I had Julian Assange's voice, but then look at the trouble it's got him yeah, into. Yeah. Whispering secrets. Maybe some people are more frightened of it than they should be, because people don't really discuss it. Yeah. It's like me with the desperate urge to kill. <laughs> exactly. When I was a child, I would hear voices in my head. It would happen when my head hit the pillow, that there was a cocktail party going on downstairs. A ghost cocktail party. The voices that were around in my head at bedtime these days are metaphoric ones. They say, can I pay the mortgage? And they say, was I an idiot at that party? To drown them out, I listen to podcasts, and I wear an eye mask. I'm like Tommy. Sometimes I say to my wife... I hope you don't think I'm being too quiet. And she says, no, not at all. There was a time in Eleanor Longdon's life when she didn't hear voices in her head. She was just an anxious teenager. Certainly for most of my teenage years, I think I was quite insular, very introspective, very sort of inside myself in a way. Eleanor grew up and went to university. This is just the college where my whole residence were. Quite a sort of 80s sort of municipal. Stop me, you know, if you think my powers of description are getting just too mesmerising. Stalin-esque, yeah, sort of like something out the Soviet block. Were you throwing yourself into <clears throat> student life, like Freshers' Week and everything? Yeah, I was. I mean, first few months at university are actually genuinely happy memories and... You know, I think I was very academically competent. I was socially successful. I had lots of, you know, sort of exciting, glamorous new friends. And um, I really actually did enjoy the university experience. Did you join any clubs? The TV society. 
I just remember going around in Freshers Week and going on the stalls that had the best freebies and getting a lot of free pot noodles. I think that's my overwhelming memory of Freshers Week. So the first few months at university were normal for Eleanor. But then something unexpected happened. Literally one day I woke up and there it was. What was it? It was a voice that used to simply narrate what I was doing in the third person. So, for example, it might say, she is going to a lecture, she is going to the bar. What, all the time? It would certainly be several times an hour. Um, so, like, she's still walking down the road? <laughs> yeah, still... <laughs> pretty much. I was startled by it, but not particularly disturbed. Was it a bit like having a kind of friend? I wouldn't go so far as to say a friend, well, um, but there was something a very dull and tedious friend. This went on for a few weeks. She is walking down the road. She is walking into a building. Eleanor thought it was annoying, but not a big problem. I had a seminar group where there was another student there who used to sort of viciously and mercilessly put me down and challenge all my opinions. But I would notice after these circumstances that I would leave the seminar room and the voice would say, as normal, she is leaving the room. But the tone had changed and the voice sounded angry. How do you say she is leaving the room in an angry way? It sounded frustrated. She's and leaving the room. Yeah, basically. <laughs> good, good work, John. Thank you. Um, Elena didn't tell anyone. She says she really didn't mind the voice. She wasn't scared so much as quite interested. But then one day she decided quite randomly to mention it. I went back to my halls of residence and there was a friend there and I told her and she was absolutely horrified. Um, While you were saying it, was the voice saying, she's finally telling <laughs> she's, someone about me? <laughs> she's digging her own grave. Um, no, the, the voice remained silent. It was a pity actually didn't say, look, just shut up now. <laughs> And this friend sort of pretty much insisted that I make an appointment to go and see the university GP. I went to see this doctor and spent the first part of the appointment just talking about how I felt, which was very much in terms of low self-esteem, anxiety, and, you know, his eyes kept wandering around the room and he was very palpably bored. And then I said, oh, and there's this voice. And he sort of swung around and literally sort of dropped his pen and was suddenly very, very interested and, you know, fascinated <laughs> by this. And he started asking me all these questions, but it seemed that I couldn't actually tell him what he wanted to hear because he would say, you know, he was asking me things like, does it tell you to hurt yourself? Does it tell you to hurt other people? Does it make you do things? And I was saying, you know, no, nothing like that. It just narrates what I'm doing in the third person. But what I didn't know then, which obviously I know now, is that voices commenting or conversing is actually seen as a symptom of schizophrenia. Did he say that to you? He didn't, but he, um, he said that he thought it would be a good idea for me to see a specialist. I went to see my psychiatrist for an outpatient's appointment and it was running very late. And when I was at university, I was part of a team that used to broadcast news bulletins to communal TV stations around the campus. What happened was I told the psychiatrist, look, I'm sorry, doctor, you know, I'm going to have to go because I'm reading the news at six. I was down in my medical records that Eleanor has delusions that she's a television news broadcaster. So it was actually completely true. When I went to see her again on the next appointment, she said, oh, 
you know, little Elmer, I'm not really sure what's going on for you. I think it would be a really good idea if you went to hospital. And she was really selling it and she made it sound like Butlins and saying, you know, we've got pool tables there and we've got a tennis court. And, um, you know, I'm a student, so I'm thinking, for, you know, free food, free laundry, bring it on. And went on a voluntary admission on the understanding that it would just be for three days. And it was nearly three months before I finally left that hospital again. I was labelled, I was medicated and I was left. One thing you should know about me Sometimes my life goes all the way down So deeply that I cannot see The one thing to save me So, Eleanor, we're in the car park of a Victorian building covered in scaffolding. Where is this? So this is the psychiatric hospital where I had my first ever admission. I mean, as you can see, it's sort of very austere, imposing-looking place. And I remember very vividly, actually, just this sense of just horror and hopelessness upon seeing it for the first time. Going into the main foyer, there was a, a sign, which was sort of left over from the, the building's infancy, which said, you know, for the care and confinement of lunatics which they'd thoughtfully not removed. So at what point did you start thinking, oh, well, where are the pool tables? <laughs> um, there was a pool table, but because I was permanently locked on the ward, I was never allowed to use it, so I felt utterly cheated. <laughs> there was bars on the window. There was no separate rooms. It was all dormitories. It was mixed sex, so men and women on the same ward. And I was the youngest person on my particular ward by at least 15 years. There was people from prison there, people who were very, very institutionalised and very floridly mad. And this was sort of really horrifying for me because it was this sense, is this what's going to happen to me? Is this my future, really? Yeah. I mean, how was the voice in all of this? In terms of the voice, I'd previously seen this as an experience and I was now being told that it was a symptom and not just symptom of mental illness, but a symptom of this carnivorous entity called schizophrenia. And what happened was that when I subsequently heard this voice, I would become very, very fearful and antagonistic towards it. I would try to ignore it, try to resist it. And basically what happened is it created this sort of vicious cycle, really, where the voice in turn became stronger and more aggressive. So one voice became three, three became six, six became nine. I ultimately left the hospital hearing 12 voices. I went into that hospital as a quite demoralised and, and fragile teenager, and I did go out of it as somebody who was very, very psychotic. Sometimes the night blows all the way through me It puts out the light inside me A so-called dominant voice emerged, and in my case, the dominant voice took on this grotesque visual manifestation. Wait, so you actually pictured I'd, the person saying it? Yeah. It was a man. It was immensely tall, swathed in black, very shadowy, very nebulous. The only thing about him that was very clear was that instead of a hand, he had a hook, sort of like a butcher's hook. And where do you think that kind of image came from? I think the significance of a very tall man in dark clothes um, was relevant to abuse experiences and I think some of the more overtly horrific elements such as the hook was partly I think due to sort of horror films that I'd watched as a teenager 
and I would look up and see this awful sort of shadowy figure skittering past my bed and then I would turn round and then it would be there, stood right in front of me. And what were the voices saying? What kind of phrases were they saying at this point? They would discuss amongst themselves sort of terrible things that were going to happen to me in the future, expressing sort of revulsion actually at me at what a pitiful and pathetic creature that I'd become. But the dominant voice was extremely menacing. It would talk a lot about death, it would talk about mutilation, destruction. I think... Eleanor says that the voice that talked about death and mutilation sounded like the sinister mechanical sounding voice on In the Beginning, the first track of the Moody Blues album On the Threshold of a Dream. Of course you are, my frightful star. And now to suit our great computer, your magnetic I'm more than that. It used to almost try to bargain with me, and this would be much later after sort of being discharged from hospital. And it would say that it could change things, that it had the power to turn back time and that it could do this and it could put me back to the circumstances I was in before I went into hospital. But in order for it to do that, I would have to prove that I was worthy of its help. So it used to set little tasks. It would say things like, you know, you have to go out today dressed in nothing but red. I used to walk particularly down by the lake. So we could go down there, because I used to sit down there quite a lot. Yeah. You mentioned the kind of challenges it would set you, and one was going out just entirely in red. That is a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm thinking that you're dressed pretty much entirely in red now. Oops. Can you remember any others? It started off relatively banal, so, you know, pull out four strands of hair, because... I just obeyed unhesitatingly without question. The demands of the voices became more insistent and more extreme. Was there never a time when you tried to stand up to, to the voice? I would occasionally sort of make this hysterical plea to the voice and the voice would always be completely impervious. So what would it say, like, this isn't a democracy, don't try and bargain with me? This is a police state. <laughs> you have no power here, you know, that was the basic message and I believed that. At one point it told me that I had to go down in front of a lecture room full of students and pick up a glass of water and pour it over the lecturer's head, which I actually did, which I'm quite proud about. Um, and then from that it moved on to saying I should injure myself and again that was something that escalated. How did the uh, lecturer feel about having a glass of water poured over his head by you? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just almost seemed to be slightly in shock actually and couldn't quite <laughs> believe it had happened. Um, and there was just this sort of, like, suspended just silence around the whole lecture <laughs> And what did you do? Did you apologise? No, I just walked out. It was almost, you know, like these kind of labours of Hercules, really. Did the voice actually use terms like labours of Hercules? The voice was, it was always very, very grandiose. There was something almost sort of Victorian about it, but also this almost, like, horrifying nobility that it had probably partly influenced by the fact I was doing an English degree at the time. At one point, actually, I did sort of attempt to drill a hole in my head to get rid of the voices. That was how... Um, oh, yeah. With what? <laughs> with an electric drill. Gosh, well, I'm glad, glad you didn't. <laughs> 
Yes, um, so am I. It wasn't a suicide attempt. I did actually at the time see it as a completely reasonable and almost like creative strategy to get rid of these voices because I was so demoralised and terrorised by them. So how did you go from all of that to being the sort of funny, clever person that you sound now? Bless you, sir. Um, one afternoon, my mum was dressing some of self-inflicted injuries. And I looked up and I saw that she was crying. And she was talking to me and what she was basically saying was, you know, I can't let go of you. I know one day you're going to come back and we're all going to be here to welcome you. And it was as if my mum was holding the hope for me. I see a clear road to you. My memories are of sitting around the kitchen table sometimes for hours while Eleanor was bombarded with these horrible voices and horrific visions. I can just remember trying to reassure her, don't worry, it will finish, it will end, you will get through this. However bad it was, there was always still a glimmer of Eleanor still there and I was always aware that she had this inner strength to get over it and she never quite lost her sense of humour. So I knew we would get Eleanor back however long it took. subsequently met an excellent psychiatrist called Pat Bracken and by this point I'd returned to Bradford and he said can you tell me a bit about yourself and I said oh I'm Eleanor and I'm a paranoid schizophrenic. He later said that that was you know incredibly sad thing to hear such a young woman say I was only sort of 21 at this point and obviously 21 is far too young to stop living and yet I remember his response equally well because he said don't tell me what other people have told you about yourself tell me about you. And he was one of the, well, the first mental health professional who could see beyond this degraded, floridly psychotic exterior and just see a young woman in pain underneath. Finally, Eleanor ended up at a place called the Hearing Voices Network. It's a place where people learn to live with their voices. Some people even find a way to make the voices work for them. This is Rufus May, who runs the place Eleanor goes to. Just like people, they have their own unique personalities, if they're manipulative characters or bullying characters, then actually having a kind of peaceful dialogue with them can tell us a lot about how to cope with them, how to change your relationship with them. So a voice that's manipulative to the host body, yeah. are they always manipulative to you as well as an outsider or are they kind of on their best behaviour with you? Sometimes they're a bit more frank with me. They loosen their guard a bit because I'm not posing a threat. We can give people tests, give their voices like, well, you say you're so powerful, how about you do something simple like do the washing up? And what do the voices say to that? <laughs> well, uh, uh, they say we're too grandiose to do the washing up. <laughs> a typical voice who's quite manipulative might say, we've got nothing to prove to you, we don't want to do that. But the person can then start to see it's not as all-powerful as it seems. Um, my plan is not to eradicate the voices, but to strengthen the person so the voices are no longer domineering them. 
voice hearing has a prevalence of about 4% in the general population, which basically means there are more people out there now hearing voices than there are psychiatric voice hearers. So do you still hear voices, but the voices are by and large helpful now, or do you not hear voices anymore? I am still a voice hearer but I've completely changed the way I relate to them. I have a greater appreciation and awareness of what they're trying to communicate with me and why they were there in the first place. And given the choice, I genuinely wouldn't choose to get rid of my voices, which is quite extraordinary thinking of the lengths that I was prepared to go to in the past to try and eradicate them. They're now an important part of my life. They can occasionally be sort of quite witty and you know amusing. One of the probably most constructive voice hearing experiences I had was during a statistics exam and one of the voices was actually dictating the answers. I don't know whether that technically counts as cheating. And the voice is getting them right. It got it right. Andy. It's like, yeah, it's not bad, is it? <laughs> but you got a first. Yes, in the exam, yes. So I'm right in thinking that you got the highest possible psychology degree from Leeds, right? That's right. And I found out a few weeks ago I've also got the highest MSc that they'd ever given. Eleanor Longdon. So she's learned how to make the voices work for her, which made me wonder if there was anyone out there whose voices completely turned everything around, made everything great. And that's when I heard the story of a patient, we'll call her Patient A, who one day turned up at the clinic of a London psychiatrist named Dr Aswanye. She was a Swiss national but had lived in this country for many years, so she was basically British. My housewife with children, just a regular living a, a normal life, really. And then one day she just heard a voice? Yes, it was a male voice and said to her, there are two of us. We used to work at Great Ormond Street Hospital for children. There's something we're going to tell you that will help you, but also said, you're going to think you're mad, but you're not. The more they tried to reassure her, the more she panicked. Said, all right, you go up to your balcony and we'll tell you what's happening in front of your house right now. Maybe you will believe us. They described to her, there's like a blue car coming around the corner, there's a white one in front of your house, (laughs) there's a couple walking a dog, that sort of thing. But that made her even more frightened. And that's when she visited the psychiatrist. As far as I was concerned, this was a straightforward psychotic experience. Anyway, there was a drug at that time called thyroidazine, and I gave this lady uh, just 10 milligrams of it three times a day. And over a very short period of less than two weeks, the voices stopped. So she went on holiday to Zurich. And while she was there, the voices broke through the medication. There was something they wanted her to attend to very quickly. It was at that point that these voices gave her an address to go to. And they gave the number of the street with the postcode. <laughs> now... <laughs> That was the point at which I had my first double take on this one because I thought voices giving an address and a postcode. Right. Her husband offered to take her to this address and one of the voices said to her, you see those two houses in front of you? (laughs) Go through the gap between those two houses onto the next street. And she now found herself in front of a particular building which was the neuroscan department of Queen Square Hospital. And... 
They said to her then to knock on the door, and she said out loud, why? And they said, because your brainstem is inflamed and you have a tumour in your brain. So they gave her two clinical diagnoses. It was then that she got another appointment to see me urgently the next day. And I then offered to get a CT brain scan. Just because you believe the voices? No, or? just to reassure her. The character of the response I received, uh, saying, yes, Dr. Azonia, we, we respect you very much as a clinician, but we think you've gone just a little bit overboard on this one. You appear to be believing your patient's hallucinations. Well, I, and I have to say, so, sitting here now, I, I'm, I'm thinking the same thing. So I said, as a favour to me, if you don't mind. And they did the scan, and there was the tumour sitting there, just as the voices said it would be. In fact, they were so surprised, they called me to come and look at the scan with the patient still in the machine. So the voices were absolutely right? Totally right. Did the voices say to her, we told you so? No, but they said something even more interesting. Uh When the lady came out of theatre... They said to her, we are pleased to have helped you. Goodbye. And they never came back? Never came back. And how's she doing? Very well. And you presented her, didn't you? I did. I presented her at the Royal Free. She was invited in to talk to the academic staff and the students. And they put all kinds of questions to her, trying to understand what had happened to this lady. And the audience was split three ways. So there were those who said the tumour itself must have been responsible for the voices. Tumours can cause any kind of experience, including voices. There were other people there who thought she was a fraud. There is a Swiss national. She wanted free health care on the NHS, so she'd pretended not to know about her pre-existing brain tumour. But that can't have been the case because she'd been living in Britain for ages and would have been entitled to free health care. And then there was the third option. The most interesting was to hear fellow psychiatrists saying this must have been a paranormal experience. There were real individuals who had a way to help her, and they did. Where are you on in that split? I mean, clearly you don't think she's a fraudster, so... Not at all. I personally believe that she was helped by someone. In my view, this world that we experience is one of many worlds... And I have no difficulty accepting the reality of non-physical worlds and its inhabitants. And I think that she was helped in that manner. Do you still hear voices like every day? Yeah, pretty much. It would be very unusual for me to have a sustained period of time with no voices at all. And actually, I went to Scarborough and was sat by the sea and actually the voices did go. Um, it's something about the, sort of the sound of the sea. And I actually really missed them because, as Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. <laughs> 